Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. Good morning. Um, if you guys will open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew 5, we're going to read the first part of the Beatitudes. So, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Terry. Good morning. Wow, we're getting more thorough with that. I think, I think we bought some new coffee. Has anybody here been in the military? Two? Okay, anybody else? Three? Okay. I wasn't the intent, but no, I'm all for the military. The military. You know, one of the things the military is famous for is they do an exceptional job of preparing people to deploy, don't they? Right? There's a word for it, boot camp, which is what we use in this country, right? And, and boot camp is so effective that, they st that we've started to adopt that word to use it for preparation for all different kinds of things, haven't we? I mean, there's like fitness boot camp, there's programming boot camp, there's summer school for kids boot camp, there's you name it, there's just about a boot camp for it because that process is so legendary in preparing people to go out that other groups that want to prepare someone for something co-opt that word and slap it on their label of training. It's interesting. Why, why, do, you, why do they train you so thoroughly at boot camp? Why? Because, what was that? They want to be able to depend upon you. Why else? So you live, that's true. Hey, we all want to live, right? That's right. It's because they're preparing you for a difficult task, right? There's going to be a difficult task in front of you. And part of the process for boot camp is quite literally, there's, there's an intentional process of stripping away in that, right? What happens when you first show up for boot camp? What do they do to you? They shave your head. What else do they do to you? They take your clothes, don't they? They put you in a uniform. They take away some of your individuality. They strip you down in order to build you up, right? All sorts of shots, too. Don't forget that. We're going to talk about some immunizations today in the spiritual sense. You know, it's interesting to notice that Jesus spent a time preparing the disciples before he sent them out. They also, and he also included a certain season of training as part of that preparation. So let me catch you up to speed to this part of scripture, okay? We're in Matthew 5 today. The first thing we see Jesus doing before that in Matthew is he's tempted in the desert. After that, he started to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he calls the disciples to say, Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. But instead of jumping into the fishing part, 
he actually jumps into this part of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically to our teaching today, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. The interesting thing about the Beatitudes is they're a countercultural message to how the world thinks about things. See, the world shows us there's a certain way to find blessing in life, to find happiness. And they actually spend hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars to market those messages to us. Right? Think of some of the slogans today that, that we know just from advertising and culture around us. One of them from, that started out not far from here, right? Just do it. Just do it. There's another one that says, have it your way, right? TV commercials give us messages about how to find blessing. There, there was this commercial, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, about, and all it shows is this little table in between two lawn chairs, two people sitting out on the beach relaxing. One of them's throwing stones in the water, and his cell phone rings, and instead of the stone, he picks up the cell phone and chucks it on in there. Because that's where you're going to be at to find blessing, right? Tropical beach turning your cell phone into a skipping stone. We all have our own pictures of what blessing looks like. Maybe it's that specific commercial there on the beach. For some, it may be a trophy case full of awards, MVP, Super Bowl trophies. Biggest winger, biggest winner at bingo night. We all can appreciate the power of now and the power to have the ability to claim the things in life that we most want. We even posit in schools theories about how people came to be and how biology works, revolving around the survival of the fittest. We see this in our own kids. One of the one of the first words that my niece learned was mine. Mine. You guys have seen Finding Nemo, right? Mine, mine, mine. And it's totally natural to see the world that way. With power, money, recognition as being the reward for doing what's right. Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men ever to live in America, was once asked, how much money does a man need to be truly happy? His answer was a little bit more. Just a little bit more of whatever I got will make me happy. We've probably all had the practice of what I could call the one days of happiness, right? One day when I graduate, I'll be really happy. One day when I get that right job, that'll, that'll make me really happy. <sighs> Shoot, one day when I leave that job and retire, that'll make me really happy. <laughs> when I have kids, that'll make me happy. Oh, when they leave the house, that'll really make me happy. <laughs> it's interesting, though. Perhaps we can discern from this text and Jesus' message that maybe... Maybe that goal of present happiness and trying to get fulfillment from external things isn't Christ's foremost goal. 
It's interesting to also notice that the word for cult and the word for culture have the same root word. I mean, there's almost religious implications into the power of advertising and culture and how they affect us down to our very wants and what we feel like would fulfill us and what we think we're supposed to become in the world. I mean, we can take anything that, that we have today and think, if I have just the right add-on to that, it'll really make me happy. I've got the new car, but if I really get a turbocharged engine, that'll really make me happy. You know, I'm, I'm going to be retired, but if I could get a little closer to the coast, that would really make me happy. I got to see the kids this week, but if they'd show me a little more appreciation, that would really make me happy. We can even seek the Lord and think that add-ons are somehow what's going to make us happy. But yet I would say, maybe greater than even happiness, joy should be our higher goal. One author said, joy is a much better goal because it describes a state that we can have regardless of our circumstances. Joy is a choice. We choose to be joyful, often in spite of our circumstances. Right now, regardless of what we are facing in our lives, we are as joyful as we choose to be. Life is difficult. Parenting is difficult. Marriage can be difficult. Work is difficult. There are many things that don't go right and don't go our way in life, if our joy depends upon everything going our way, we'll be miserable for much of our life. Paul in Philippians records his experience in the Lord as quite opposite from that. In Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13, he said, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That kind of thinking is at the opposite end of the spectrum from what the world's messaging is. But I think our sense of well-being when our sense of well-being derives from fulfillment through career, retirement, or leisure, those things can seem hollow. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God didn't make a soul small enough that the world could fulfill it. The Beatitudes won't help you get to another level of, of attainment they won't take you to the next level of health or accomplishment. They will teach you to find unspeakable joy in poorness of spirit. See, the blessed life says that we are all spiritually bankrupt. That we can't buy our way to God. And we don't even know how spiritually poor we are until we come in contact with Jesus. 
See, our well-being in God resides in being a part of the kingdom of God. And there's a certain kind of person that comes to that understanding, and the Beatitudes explain explicitly what kind of person that is. They also contain an implicit invitation to become this kind of person, to sit at our Savior's feet, to feel fortunate for that, to feel like our eyes are opened, that we're drawn to God, to be poor and mourning and meek and hungry and merciful and pure and peaceable and fulfilled. My second point, you see, through all that, God has an inverted sense of what it means to be blessed. According to Rubel Shelley, the word blessed, see, in in Matthew 5, verse 3, the first thing he said is blessed are. So we're going we're gonna to explore a little bit what that word means. The word blessed or happy is translated from a Greek word, makarios, which was originally used in Greek to describe the state of the gods and fulfillment in the heavenlies. So you'll see this word blessed in some translations. You'll see in other translations where it's translated as the word happy. But I don't know if our English translation really captures the deep, intense joy that Jesus is going for when he starts off the Beatitudes with this word, blessed are. The idea that one has more money and has more toys and that that would make you happy is not what Jesus is going for. That's a myth and it's untrue. Literally, being blessed means to be happy because of good fortune. Yet he starts off the Beatitudes by saying, being blessed is to be poor in spirit, which, is, which would be heard as an opposite because being poor to this culture would not be seen as being fortunate. And we even use the word blessed today to mean something different than what Jesus meant right? Some people would say we have a hashtag blessed culture. And by that, I mean, if I get that great parking spot at the store, man, I'm blessed. If I get that promotion at work, that's a good thing. But hashtag blessed in the way that Jesus was talking about blessed, that doesn't make it there. Man, my spouse finally appreciates me. Hashtag blessed, right? Those are all good things, but fall short of what Christ is talking about when he starts off this word, this sentence said, and said, blessed are. Let me tell you a secret about God. God wants to bless your life. He's just in the process with you to make you more blessable. A lot of our statements and perceptions about being blessed revolve around being externally blessed instead of internally blessed. It's been a long time since I've seen a Facebook post or an Instagram post about, wow, I really learned something about my soul today, hashtag blessed. I've really become spiritually poor in a whole new way, hashtag blessed. That's not how we see blessing in our culture and our world, but that 
is quite frankly how Jesus sees those things. In fact, God would say, when you're persecuted, you're still blessed. In fact, you may be blessed more. When you're hurting, you're blessed. If you're hungry, you're blessed. Now, you're not blessed because of those things. It's not a blessing to be hungry. But the internal blessing that God gives you exists whether or not there is external pain or persecution or challenge. Think about this as an example in the Bible. The prophets, great men of God, blessed. Their lives were not what I would consider like happy, all right? Like if I were to take... If I were to take an Instagram travel influencer who has their picture taken on tropical beaches and on top of, you know, the, the towers of France and on the pyramids in Egypt and look at their beautiful lives and their toned figures and their six-pack, and I took a, a picture of the prophets, how they oftentimes were a little isolated or alone or in pain or speaking hard messages to people, I wouldn't put those two folks on the same page but often it's easy to see how external blessing is more accessible to us than the internal. And it's also in our culture more easy to market. The challenge is, well, how do we find this blessing? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In John 18.36, Jesus also said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, that it might be delivered. But my kingdom is not of this world. When Jesus talks about the blessings that he's trying to give you, he's talking about supernatural blessings, which are going to be experienced internally. And to find those things, we need to turn into God. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We're not talking about physical poverty. We're not talking about material poverty. We're talking about maintaining a certain attitude. An attitude of opening ourselves up to God to help us in that we are spiritually bankrupt. Some versions translate this, this word poor in spirit also as humility, to be humble. See, humility is necessary for salvation. A proud man can't come to God and beg for his soul, but a humble man will. It's been said that one is poor in spirit, that is sensible to, of his own littleness, weakness, and poverty. He sees the greatness, glory, and majesty of the great God and how he sinks into nothing in his own eyes at God's sight. He's been employing and wondering and amazed in his eyes and viewing the majesty and glory and excellency of God and is fulfilled in sweet astonishment. When he comes to turn his eyes inward upon himself, he sees what a little helpless creature he is, how he is humbled, what low thoughts he has of himself, how he doth annihilate himself in the presence of this great God. Jesus expounded on this when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless we turn and become like children, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like a child will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, in God's kingdom, our blessing is tied more to our hearts than our abilities to acquire things. In his kingdom, even if you have abilities, you can derail blessing with your own sin. The Christian life is more about our character formation than our sermon formation. The gospel should apply to every intention of our heart in that it, back in the Old Testament, we were told not to kill, not to steal, not to lie. In the New Testament, Jesus expounds on that to say, don't even be a person who would kill or steal or lie. In James 4.6, he expounds on this and says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Notice that here, God's word for how he approaches the proud is he opposes them. Literally, to place himself in opposition to or in battle against. God doesn't ignore churches or individuals who are proud. He acts, actively fights against them. Imagine the implications for a church. How God could bless a ministry composed of, or led by people who are proud. The fact that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble ought to cause us to re-examine our hearts and evaluate if we are part of the problem for our own growth or for the churches. Jesus is a teacher who came not just to inform our intellects, but to inform our very loves. He isn't content just to deposit new ideas into our mind. He's after nothing less than your very wants, your loves, and your longings. His teaching does, just doesn't cut, touch the calm, cool, collected space where we do Bible study or have reflection or do contemplation, but he's a teacher who invades the, even the heated, passionate regions of the heart. Yet sometimes, even in church, we can, we can approach discipleship as this didactic endeavor, right? As long as we give you this, a certain amount of points to understand who God is, that's it. Our discipleship process is complete. You can take, join the roles as a member of our church, and you're good in God's kingdom. But that's not what Jesus was after. He started his very teaching with, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Think about this. A couple people here have been to Bible school and or seminary. You get filled up with a lot of Bible information. Maybe you've spent 30, 40, 50 years in a Bible study. You could know a ton of things about the Bible. You could take a multiple-choice Scantron test, get a perfect score on New Testament, Old Testament, prophets, whatever. But if your heart isn't changed to seek after God, you're not going to find his blessings. There's an ever-present truth that at any given time, we could be called to judgment for what we worship. The way to God is not about changing what we think. It's actually changing who we are through how we worship. Interesting story happened last week that reminded me of the immediacy of this. I've been out to the Channel Islands diving a few times. Uh, one time uh, I was on this boat called the Conception and 
we took this trip out to the Channel Islands where we got to scuba dive off the coast there. Now, a typical conversation for that boat would be, you know, get on board, you're going out with a bunch of new people, you're taking photos. I mean, I've seen literally the flukes of whales slapping the water. I have video of this from that dive boat as we went out to the islands. Underwater photographers taking pictures of the glory of God's majesty in what seems like a whole new world. He's like, I'd go out there, I'd go spearfishing. I have big old fish that I caught off of the back of this boat. It was a great time. But if you've been paying attention to the news recently, you might have heard the name of the Conception dive boat. It was a boat that caught fire off the Channel Islands about a week and a half ago. See, there was 34 people on that boat, probably not unlike a group of people that I've been around and spent time around and had fun with. They woke up one morning, they got on a dive ship, and they went out to appreciate God's kingdom and God's glory just the same way we do. And their fate as of today has a lot more to do with the humility of their hearts than it did with any of the pictures they took or any of the achievements they had or any of the sights or sounds they experienced on that boat. And that, that just brings to mind to me the urgency in finding that sense of humility and being poor and broken in spirit and sharing and what modeling that looks like to the greater community. In conclusion, how do we gain this humility? Well, Jesus talked about it in Mark 10, 45. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, came to serve and not to be served, so that he could give his life as a ransom for many. See, in Jesus' own ministry, even though he had the right to be served, he came poor in spirit to be an example to others. The God that I owe nothing to, the God that when I go meet face-to-face in eternity, the God that I am in desperate need of came here to serve me and humbled himself for my mistakes. If that's not the most powerful message in all of history, I don't know what is. If we want to be people of prayer, in a reborn community, we must learn to walk in the humility of Jesus. See, Jesus was humble, and perhaps, although it would be easy to gloss over that, perhaps that's one of his most outstanding characteristics. Imagine this, if you were God, equal with the Father, existed before all of creation, created this tiny little speck called earth and had this planet of people running amok. (laughs) And you had lightning bolts? Would you even spend your time to get hurt by them? You know what I'm saying? Thank God that he is more humble than we are. 
See, Jesus laid down his privileges to be a man and experience all of the suffering and pain and death that we experience. It says in Colossians 1.15 that he is the invisible God. And his humility was most expressed when he died on the cross for our sins. He never insisted for his rights and his privileges to be honored. He never forced understanding of himself to everyone he met, but he emptied himself of his reputation and was content to be seen as ordinary and not seek esteem. He embraced a life of weakness, of poverty, of shame, at times homelessness, rough travels, rejection, and pain. We realize that this was prophesied about in Isaiah 53 when it's talked about Jesus as a suffering servant who had a lowly heart. Abraham, who talked to God, in Genesis 18 said, Behold, I have spoken to the Lord. I am, I who am but dust and ashes. What that verse means to me is there's a very deep depravity in our very essence, in the temporality of who we are and the fact that there's sin in our lives. No matter how often you go to church, no matter how often you pray, no matter what Sunday school you've been to or mastered or taught, no matter how much scripture you've memorized, we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. What can we do about it? Number one, we can examine our hearts. In Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. See, God calls us to be on that eternal, internal journey. And this is Old Testament even. On that internal journey, God, search me, know me. When Jesus showed up, he started there. He said, be blessed, be poor in spirit. The second thing we do, we can pray. We can pray that God would transform our lives. It says in James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. We can come together. We can talk about these things. We can confess. We can pray. The third thing we can do is return to the gospel. We need the gospel every day because we forget the gospel every day. So said Martin Luther. What he was talking about is some of this stuff. Like, we start off with the gospel and being saved. Like, yes, I need the Lord. And then it becomes a race for how well we can do in our own activity. Hey, I need the Lord to be saved, but I'm going to sanctify myself. Good luck with that. That's not what the Bible would say. You're going to need God to transform your innermost workings to be saved. He's going to use your effort and your attitude, but your effort and your attitude are not going to get the work done by themselves. 
We need reminders of what he has done for us and with us and in us, and we need transformation. And the gospel's there to sustain us and deliver us. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for drawing us together to hear your word. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts to the truth and the power of your gospel in regenerating us, remaking us, to giving us a new life and a new mission. Lord, not just the time that we pray to prayer and ask you to come save us, but every single day. God, we ask that your supernatural power be alive in our hearts, that you would be transforming us from the inside out that you would give evidence of that to our loved ones, to our families, to our community. And ultimately, God, that would be a testimony of, of your work inside each and every one of our hearts. We pray all these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit AllianceBible.Church. 